Lord, we, we are united as a people around your word. That is what we gather around, and we have a deep, deep reverence for it. Not just for its own sake, but because it leads us to you. It reveals who you are. It is precious to us because in studying your word, we see your grace, your love, your power, your truth, your sovereignty, your goodness, your kindness, your patience, your wrath, your lordship over all of creation. And so we treasure your word. We thank you for it. We, we thank you for the beauty of this creation that reveals you as well the sunshine and the birds and little children and the beautiful things that you give us in this world that you have made. But we especially treasure your word because of what it reveals about who you are and this plan of grace and redemption that you have given us. So Lord, as we gather together this morning around your word, I ask that you would make our time fruitful, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would give us a simple and joy-filled faith in your son Jesus. Amen. Well, that's really what I want to talk to you about this morning is uh, the joy of a simple faith. We're going to continue our study through the book of Luke. So if you have your Bible, I would love for you to turn there. Um, If you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you one. We have a couple in the back of the room that you could have, or you could just uh, pull up an app on your phone that's a Bible app. But we're going to be in Luke chapter 10. Um, I'm a dad, and one of the things that I love about being a daddy is just enjoying the simple nature of my children. They have simple needs. They have simple desires. Their understanding of the world, it is not at all complex. It's very, very basic. And children are simple-minded, and I think that that's just a precious and a beautiful thing. I I love their innocence. Um, Take my three-year-old son, Soren, for example— He's actually named after the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, who I think is one of the most cryptic and difficult philosophers to read. And my three-year-old son Soren shares absolutely nothing in common with him. (laughs) Soren's perfect day would be uh, waking up and playing with cars, eating peanut butter and jelly for lunch, having his blankie during a nap, maybe some goldfish for a snack a story from mom and dad at bedtime, and uh, cuddling up in bed to go to sleep and start the whole process over again the next day, right? He may be named after a brilliant philosopher, but Soren, the three-year-old, is a pretty simple guy. And even his relationship with God is very simple. I would even go so far to say that we as adults could stand to learn something from Soren's childlike faith. Soren, I think, knows four things for certain about God, okay? Number one, God is really, really, really big. Number two, God is invisible or invincible. He doesn't really know the difference between those words, but he knows that they describe God in any case, right? Number three, Soren knows that God is in charge. He is the boss. He is the king. And number four, Soren knows that God loves him deeply. And to be honest, I sort of envy my son Soren in in his innocent, childlike faith. He knows nothing about the conversation between faith versus works. He knows nothing about suffering or the problem of evil. He has no idea what apologetics means or what systematic theology is. 
He doesn't even know any Bible verses except maybe the Lord's Prayer, which we've prayed with our kids from time to time. But he's got the essentials pretty much covered, doesn't he? God is in charge, and God loves him. Now, I admit, it's yet to be seen whether my son Soren actually really loves God and is saved. I think only time will reveal that, and I pray earnestly for that. But as a three-year-old, he has a childlike faith that's beautiful and simple and pure and right on. And I think in some ways it's the kind of faith that every Christian should strive for because it's the kind of faith that Jesus himself rejoices over in Luke chapter 10. It's not anti-intellectual. It's not of the book-burning type. It's not dumb. It's not resistant to learning or resistant to greater knowledge. It's just satisfied with truth that is very simple truth. Like God is in charge and God loves me. Let me read Luke 10 for us. I'm going to start in verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. I want to look at this passage in two parts. Maybe your Bible has a heading that kind of divides these sections up, and I'm going to follow that division as we look at this together. So let me reread just those first couple of verses, 17 through 20, one more time. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So the disciples returned from their mission. Remember, if you were here last week, Jesus had sent them out to these various towns and villages to prepare the way for him, to proclaim the good news of his coming. And now here we see the fruit of their ministry. We see them returning with much enthusiasm and rejoicing. And they're excited because of this incredible power and authority that they have. Even the demons are subject to them in the name of Jesus powerful spiritual forces have been overcome by the ministry of the disciples working in the name of Christ. And these 72 disciples, they were blessed to see God move in a way that many people only dream of experiencing. And as a result, they're rejoicing in their power and their authority in all of the effectiveness that they have had in the work that they've done for Christ. And they're right to rejoice 
In fact, it's even more amazing than they themselves understand, right? Jesus tells them how effective their ministry has truly been. He opens their eyes to what's been taking place behind the scenes. He says that as they were out ministering, he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And through the power of the name of Jesus, the disciples themselves were tearing down the strongholds of Satan in these places where they went to do ministry. The power of Christ was overcoming the power of Satan through these men in the work that they were doing. And wow, that, that's a powerful ministry, isn't it? That's an effective impact. These are lofty and profound accomplishments. Jesus has passed on to these people a radical power that surpasses that of the devil and his demons. And so it's no surprise then that they return rejoicing in all that they have seen. These are truly incredible things. Okay, now while Jesus does acknowledge the goodness and the power of their ministry, in verse 20, he ends up yanking them out of this supernaturalism to ground them in a much more profound reality. He actually extinguishes their joy on the basis of their spiritual authority, and he redirects their joy to a simple truth. They're focused on the supernatural power that they have in the name of Jesus, but Jesus simplifies their focus to an even more profound thing. He says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And here's the joy of a simple faith. Our God loves us, and for his great pleasure, for his great pleasure, pleasure, for his own joy, he has chosen to give us eternal life. Wow. Our God loves us, and for his glory, he covered us with the blood of Christ and wrote our names among the names of the redeemed. Wow. The most holy Christian saint and the worst of Christian sinners share the same gracious gift. God has written their names in his eternal kingdom. The most wise and learned Christian scholar and the illiterate believer who can't even read their Bible, they share the same incredible gift, the gift of grace through faith in Christ. The brilliant-minded Christian and the simple-minded, the powerful and the weak, the more effective and the less effective, they all share equally in the riches of heaven. And whatever your position is, however God has gifted you or wired you or called you or equipped you, You have the same grace that I do. You have the same grace that covers the elders of our church. The same grace as the giants of the faith who have come before us in history, even the apostles themselves. And you share in the same grace as the lowly, unnamed Christians that have filled the pages of history since the early start of the church. And however great or small you are in your Christian faith, rejoice. Because through Christ, your name has been written in heaven. Wow. Now, it's an understatement, really, to point out what great advice this is. I mean, it's the words of Jesus. So on that level alone, it is sheer brilliance, not just good advice. But as Christians, we're constantly tempted to think about the wrong things, aren't we? I cross paths with all different kinds of Christians. And I meet pastors who become obsessed with bigger and bigger churches bigger and bigger ministries. I've met elders obsessed with their spiritual authority over the flock that God has given them. 
I've seen scholars obsessed with knowledge and new books and publishing and writing. I've seen Christians proud of their mastery of Bible verses or proud of being filled with the Spirit and the power that comes with it or proud of their righteousness and the good things that they do for God. And there's nothing wrong with these things necessarily. But often Christians, because of these kinds of distractions, they forget their greater reason for rejoicing. God is gracious. And in his grace, he has written our names in heaven. And it's good to grow in your faith. I implore you to know God's word and to serve him with greater fervor, to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and to obey him faithfully in all that you do. All of that is so, so important. But never forget the very simple reason that you have for rejoicing. Never forget the joy of a simple faith. God has written your name in the kingdom of heaven. You belong to him by his grace through the blood of Christ. The greatest blessing of the Christian life is the salvation that God has given us by faith in Christ. And this is more than just being saved. You hear that term, it's so much more than just being saved. It is fellowship with God. Consider this, it it is having your name written onto the guest list of God. Not based on what you have done, but based on what Christ alone has done for you. And what a joy it will be someday to sit in fellowship at the table of God, communing with Him in His presence. And ours, ours is a simple faith in Jesus, who saved us for His good pleasure. Now look and see just how important this is in the eyes of Christ as we look at the next couple of verses, 21 and 22. It says, in that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. The wise and understanding people that Jesus is referring to here, they're the scribes and the Pharisees. These are the men who made it their life's work to know God's word so that they could seek to be like God in obedience. They were incredibly moral and religious men. Men who technically were far better off than you and I. Much more right standing before God than we do. And yet... For all of their wisdom, for all of their understanding, they actually couldn't see God in the person of Jesus Christ. Their wisdom and their learning, it was supposed to open their eyes so they could see, but in fact, it had blinded them to the truth. And the little children that Jesus, referring to, uh, that Jesus refers to, he's not literally talking about little children, he's referring to the disciples who are little children in their faith before God. These men who he's just sent out to proclaim the kingdom. These guys, they were in fact ignorant men. They had very few credentials, if any at all. They were lower class, blue collar, undistinguished. They were simple-minded people. And yet God had chosen to open the eyes of their hearts and work through their simple minds according to his extraordinary purposes. And we see this kind of thing often 
in the work of what Jesus does, where he takes the systems of the world and he flips them upside down in his kingdom. The wise are actually at a disadvantage, while the simple-minded and the childlike are blessed. Now here I think a question needs to, uh, to be addressed. If we look closely at verse 21, why is it that God will hide the truth of the wise or I'm sorry, the truth from the wise and understanding, and instead reveal it to the simple-minded, the ignorant. Why does God choose to work like that? Why does God treasure the posture of simple faith and reject those who believe themselves to be wise and understanding? And I think that we can find the answer in these verses, but I want to bring in another text here for clarity. Turn a couple pages to the right to Luke 18. We'll be here in Luke in like three years, so I figure I've got some time... This is probably a story that will be somewhat familiar to you, Luke 18, starting in verse 9. I think it will help us understand a little bit. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Two people find themselves in the presence of God, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And you need to understand that in Jesus, in in the eyes of the audience that Jesus has, the Pharisee is the good guy. The tax collector is the bad guy. The wise and understanding Pharisee who knows God's law, he knows God's will, he knows what it means to be righteous and holy. But Jesus reveals that his knowledge, his wisdom, his understanding had led him to believe that he actually deserves God's attention. His right thinking and his right living had led him to this posture of pride. And he starts his prayer with this line, Can you believe it? God, I thank you that I am not like other men. He thinks that he is actually worthy to stand in the presence of God because he's better than most. He thinks that his fasting and his tithing, his understanding about justice and purity, have allowed him to actually meet God halfway in the equation. And he is trusting in himself that he is righteous. And in contrast, then, Jesus talks about a simple man, a tax collector, a sinner. He's uneducated in the finer points of God's law, but he knows he shouldn't be standing in the presence of God. He's not trained in the requirements of righteousness according to the learned, but he understands that he's a sinner who needs God's mercy. He doesn't even dare to lift his eyes to gaze in the direction of heaven because he knows that he's unworthy to do so. And his prayer is simple, so short, and so sweet. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he knows that to meet God, he can't go where God is, 
Because only God can cross this chasm of sin that lies between the two of them. And then Jesus tells us the point of the story in verse 14. The sinner, because of his humility, ends up justified before God, while the wise and proud Pharisee is condemned. God will humble the proud, and he will exalt the sinful. And here's why God acts this way. Because God always works to make much of himself. God will not share his glory. When a simple person is lifted up, God gets the glory. And it's obvious that God has done this work, right? But the proud person who thinks that they're wise and understanding, if they get lifted up, what do they do? They pat themselves on the back and they rejoice in their knowledge. They rejoice in their efforts, their goodness, and their understanding that has brought them to this place. When God lifts up those who have a simple faith, God gets all the glory. And when God lifts up the proud and understanding on the few occasions that he chooses to do so, they steal his glory by claiming some of the credit. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. And now I think a clearer picture of our passage from Luke 10 begins to come into focus. The disciples, they want to rejoice that they have power and authority, but Jesus knows the danger in that. If they rejoice in their abilities, even abilities that God has given them graciously, they risk falling into this trap of taking for themselves the glory that only belongs to the Lord. And so Jesus says, far better to rejoice in what God has done Rejoice that he has written your name in heaven. And then Jesus tells his disciples that it is God's gracious will to lift up the simple and to blind the proud. It's God's will to exalt those who bring glory to his name while thwarting the efforts of those who through their wisdom and understanding would claim for themselves what rightly belongs to God. And then verse 22 All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Only the Son of God, Jesus, has the power and the authority to make God known. The wise and the understanding think that by their own learning and efforts, they can come to know God. But Jesus rejoices that no one can come to the Father except through the Son. And when the Son reveals God, the Son receives the glory. Okay, now having said that, I can't help but wonder if I've actually complicated a simple faith. What should be simple, I've now talked about so much that you're wondering, is this complicated? So let me try and say it plainly by using the words of a child. I made lunch for my kids at one point this week, and I was talking to them while they were eating, and I I said to them, if you fall down and you can't get up, where can you run for help? And my good little children, (laughs) they know the answer that, you know, is applicable to just about every quiz like this. They all chimed in, and they said, to God, very excitedly, right? And then my six-year-old son, Aiden, said to me, Well, actually, Daddy, when you fall down and you can't get up, you can't run to God. (laughs) And then he said, then he said, so God runs to you. Simple, 
and brilliant and absolutely true, right? And I believe that this is what Jesus is getting at here. God always does the running. That's the message of the cross. God comes to the little children so that God gets the glory for running to scoop them up in his arms. God comes to the simple because they can't possibly come to him first. God runs to the sinner because it's his gracious will to love and to bless the humble. And God hides himself from those who are proud enough to think that by their efforts, they can find him. God treasures those with a simple faith because the simple look to him in their time of need. So is it possible for us to cultivate a simple faith? Is it possible for us to become like little children and actually develop a simple faith? I think so. I, I treasure books. I have lots of them because I like to read them, but I don't think it comes through those kinds of things. I think like it's already been said here this morning by I think Jim and Ben, it comes through reading the Bible. And I want you to understand this because this is so important. It comes from reading the Bible, this simple faith. It comes from reading the Bible when we read the Bible, not just to know the Bible, but to know the author of the Bible. Not just to know the words of God, but to know the God who spoke them. In verses 23 through 24, Jesus says this, Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, and they did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Blessed are the eyes that see the incarnate word of God, that see Jesus in the pages of Scripture. Blessed are the eyes that through God's word come to see Christ. And we can't see Jesus now because he's risen and he's seated in heaven at the right hand of God the Father. But we can read God's word and we can actually see Christ. And when we see Jesus, we cannot help but be humbled to cry out to him, to need and desire him. This is the Messiah that many Old Testament prophets and kings longed to see. And they wrote about this Messiah. They anticipated his coming. They longed for the day in which God would reveal him to the simple and the humble who needed him. And this is the Messiah whom we've now been privileged to be able to know and to follow, who was foretold in the Old Testament and finally fully revealed in the New Testament. And one of the places, I think, where these prophets and these kings specifically recorded their desires to see God's Savior was in the Psalms. So here's my simple application for you, right? All kinds of books are constantly being written on how to know God more and how to be more like Jesus and how to follow him. There's like a new one that comes out every week, and that's great. But here's my simple application for you. If you long to develop a simple faith that produces joyful fruit in your life, I want to encourage you to just read the Psalms. Meet Jesus in these prayers to God. See him there in all his fullness. Encounter God through the prayers of Scripture in Psalms. I think that in some ways God's been gracious to me to give me a simple faith, a childlike faith, 
And I believe that it's come over the years through reading the Psalms. These prayers, one or two a day, almost every day. And I find that in the prayers of the Psalms, a simple but deep vision of our God is found and fulfilled in Christ. So I want to leave you with this, just a challenge. Read a psalm a day so that God can humble you through his word, so that God can fill you with the joy of a simple faith in Christ. Let me pray. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. The Lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He does not deal with us according to, our, according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As the Father shows compassion to his children, So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Father, we thank you that you are the God who runs to the simple. We thank you that you are the God who lifts up the humble. We thank you that in the cross we see your grace that longed to bring hope and healing and restoration to those who were downcast. And Lord, each of us here this morning, we are sinners. And so we cry out, have mercy on us, O God. Amen.